Welcome to Academic Conversation with Merton and Morgan. I'm Alicia. And I'm Mary. And we are sharing content that supports and empowers parents and teachers. Hi, Mary. Hi, Alicia. How are you? I'm fine. I get to be the phone guest this time. I know. I'm so glad we're still doing it, though. It's fun. Me too. Even though we have to do it apart. But Yeah. Hopefully soon we'll be able to get back to our favorite library. Yes, I can't wait. I can't wait for things. Things are opening up slowly, but I'm I'm getting anxious. Right, especially for the libraries. I keep checking to see if any of them are open around here, and they're still not. So we'll be so happy to see our library. Well, we did off a lot for this podcast once again, didn't we? Yes, it's so number four. Um, this is Reader Come Home by Marianne Wolf. And if you've been reading along with us, we have done two previous podcasts, one on chapters actually called Letters, one and two, and then our second one was on three, and then we were trying to think of how we might break down four, but it's really too much to to combine with another part of the book, don't you think? There's a lot of information. It's, mm-hmm. it's a good read, but a heavy read. It really requires all those deep reading processes that we talked about in letter three. Yeah, and she does talk in this, yeah, this chapter about how um, we have a duty to an author to really read, read their words carefully, and I think that she makes us do that with her beautiful writing. She, she holds us accountable for how she, the message that she wants to get across, and I really appreciate that about her. Yes, you um, you really have to pay attention and and not multitask. This is not a um, an audible book that I could enjoy typically. Uh, right. I really have to sit down and, and read this and, and give it my my full attention. And like you said, it it's so well written that it deserves that attention. Right. Yeah. She treated us like we would give it that attention. So I feel yeah. like we um, owe her that as the author. Again, um, Alicia and I encourage you to get the book if you don't have it because there is no way that we could get to every single point that's worth mentioning. Uh, We are committed to keeping our podcast, you know, relatively reasonable in length. So there there is um, a lot more than what we will discuss. But um, that being said, we're going to hit the things that really stood out to us. So this letter is the, the question that she poses at the beginning of it is, what will become of the readers we have been? So in this letter, she really starts to hone in on the quality of our attention. And I think this is a hot topic for anybody who tries to get attention in order to convey something to someone else, all of us who teach parents to children, uh, friends to friends, people who speak to a congregation, in any way that you're trying to get attention so that you can communicate a message this chapter is about the quality of that attention and what may happen to it over time based on the brain circuitry, the reading brain and the science, and also the plasticity of the brain and what it does and how it responds to the input that it gets. So I want to share this quote. This is directly from the book, and I also want to let our listeners know that all of the research in this book is not specifically Marianne Wolf. She is a researcher, but she also quotes other researchers, so we don't want to uh, be remiss in not making sure that we say that. Some of this 
uh, research that she shares, she cites her colleagues and others. Just want to make sure we said that. Okay, so concentration of attention is something that she talks about quite a bit in this book, in, in this letter. It allows us to hold a word, a sentence, a passage in such a manner that we can move through multiple processes to all the layers of meaning, form, and feeling that enhance our lives. And to me, when she mentions the multiple processes in the past chapter, she really gave us background knowledge about all the deep processes that happen in the brain in tandem while we read deeply and think critically. So in order for all those things to work, we have to have concentration of attention. And if you've ever sat with a kid and wanted to help them read, you know that if they can't attend to what it is that they're reading, then they're not going to understand it. So another question she poses is, what if that capacity to perceive lowers because we're confronted with too much information and what can we do about it? So she really gets into quality of attention. She gets into how much information that we receive all the time currently and what does that do? How do we process that? And then how does that affect us? And what might we be able to do about it? Now, our species is hardwired to need to pay attention to new things, right? She called that novelty bias. And, you know, I've read about this in the past. You know, if you're someone who, who works with young people and you are trying, like, again, to get them to engage and concentrate, you learn about this. We have to be able to um, notice something new and different if we are to survive. That's been something that has helped our species survive, is to be instantly aware of new things. And we even see that, you know, especially with kids who might live in an environment where they need to be vigilant because it's not always a safe place to be, and they are the ones who notice. We, we find they notice everything. When we're, they're in our classrooms or they're interfacing with other people, they're the ones you can ask, you know, what happened? Who just passed by the classroom door, no matter where they are in the room? They know who it was. You know what I mean, don't you, Lily? Yes. You know, that is something we have to have. We have to be able to pay attention to something that's new and novel, and you can use those things to grab kids' attention. You know, at the beginning of a lesson or, you know, in a science experiment, there are ways to grab kids' attention in a positive way and get that, use that. But we have so much coming at us now. She, we, she discusses a phenomenon called hyperattention, and she also called it continuous partial attention. And Alicia, I'm going to stop there for just a second. I don't know. I'm sure you probably underlined or highlighted that somewhere, but do you ever feel like continuous partial attention describes what your brain is doing um, when confronted with all this information that we have? Yes, and, and I have to actually stop, remove myself from what I'm doing take a couple, take a break, because I just, I feel like I'm overloaded, almost. And she talks about, in her book, how we, we're, we're in this environment right now where we're, we're bombarded with all of this information across multiple devices. So it, it's, it's not just sitting in front of a laptop, it's our phone and, and how we, we check it multiple times an hour. And she, she has in here, and I'm gonna, going to quote her, on average, people in their 20s now check their cell phone between 150 and 190 times a day. And I hate to admit it, I'm probably one of those people. Uh, not in my 20s, of course, but that check their phone 
almost 200 times a day. When when I see that in print, that's that's a little alarming to me. Well, yeah, it makes you realize how much of your life, you know, your own life that you're spending sort of, you are trained by your phone. It's not, when I hear a statistic like that about how many times, you know, on the average that young people check their phones and you said you think you might do it that many times too, are we using that phone as a tool or are we being conditioned by the phone, you know, to behave a certain way? It's a question worth thinking about, would you say? Yes, I just think about when I first wake up. Within probably the first 10 minutes of me waking up, I'm checking my phone. And so I need to kind of stop and reflect why that is and maybe do some um, something in place of that. But it's just become a habit and not necessarily a, a good one. Because when I just reading this book, I, I can tell that my that, that my level of, of concentration has diminished the more oh, really? the more I'm into technology. Uh-huh. The more I was reading about how how we're you know she talks about the rapid task switching and high yes. levels of stimulation and low level threshold uh, for boredom. And it just, I see that more and more in the young people that I, I work with. And yeah. and we talk about, we have to make sure they're engaged. And, and I think it's it's because of the technology, which we love and is so helpful to us. But there's another side to that. And we have to maybe, there needs to be a balance there, I think. Yeah. So, I do hear yeah. kids talk about being bored a lot, too. Yes. I mean, I feel like they get bored. Now, of course, our, our parents' generation told us the same thing. Right. I, I, you know, my dad used to say that about too much television, and I, he's, I'm sure he's not wrong about that. I, probably, I would agree with him that, you know, too much of any kind of screen time, you know, it does, it stimulates your brain in a way that you think you're bored, but what you've really been doing is just looking at a screen. You know, I think it fools almost, fools your brain into thinking that you're bored. Right. When you're literally not doing anything because you feel like you are because you're watching a screen. It's just, Right. It's really concerning because we can feel it happening to ourselves, right? But we yes. also have kids, our own kids and our students who are immersed in this from the cradle, you know? Yes, and who don't have the kind of, like, at least I have the strategies to be able to put it down and, and to walk away and, and to go back to the reading that I've known. But if you're just becoming a reader, you can't go back to the reading you've known because you're you're in the process of developing uh-huh. those practices. And one of the practices that she talks about when with the digital reading is doing this form of the zigzag reading that that she called it when you're just doing the word spotting of the text on the screen. And and we know that in a book, you know, you you have that directionality left to right. You're the story flows in a sequence that that's not always there when you're reading on that screen. You're yeah. able to kind of come off of the screen and then go back and kind of choose, return to the body of text, she says, and choose those supporting details. And you're never really fully immersed in the story as if you would have that book actually in your hand. What that does to those processes when when you touch the physicality of the book, you know? Yeah, yeah. It adds another dimension. That later on in the chapter about like the temporal aspect, touching, actually yeah. putting your hands on a book, touching it. Now I don't remember who she cited there. That was somebody else's study, but um, but that actual physical action of touching the book. Um, she talks about how that puts you in time and space. It puts you. It yes. orients you into what you're reading. Is that? Am I yes. saying that correctly? Yes, you, you are. Um, it makes it real, and it brings elements of your memory. It kicks elements of your of 
have your working memory into action. You are physically, chronologically in the what you're reading. And it helps you have an overall right so that you understand and comprehend mm -hmm. what it is that you've read. And it just adds that, that other dimension. Which activates yeah. that reading brain. Yeah, that blew me away. I'm glad you mentioned that. And then she also contrasted that, I thought, which was really a good way to say it, is the skimming, skipping, and browsing. Instead yes. of being physically there, you're elsewhere and nowhere. You know, you're, you're everywhere and nowhere, I think. Because you're in so many different places, and you're not really committed to that one that one thing that you really want to know more about. And and it was interesting. She kind of talks about when you're you know when you're in, in in that digital reading or you're on the internet and your uh, your brain's kind of used to to that zigzag way, and then you come out of it. You when you're reading like that, your your brain. She talked about in those the previous letters how it's it, it's always making a pathway, and so when you come out, that's how you're going to read your book the way you read it on you know on the device yes yes which and i yes to do that which is interesting yeah. because it, it literally changes the way you're reading right i wanted to uh make sure mention this too because i think that i've been on a soapbox about this before and i'm about to step back upon it again if information is continuously perceived as a form of entertainment at the surface mm -hmm. level, it remains on the surface, potentially impeding real thinking rather than deepening it. I just, you know, have been reading since 2011, 2012, about letting, helping students understand that just because information is on a screen doesn't mean that it, it has to be just entertainment. You know, I've said this to you so many times, I know you're probably tired of hearing it, but we, we've missed an opportunity to teach kids that screens and, and the internet and their digital tools can be more than entertainment. They can be their gateway into deeper knowledge. They can use those things that way, but they've been conditioned to see them as entertainment. And so it's really hard now, I think, to get kids to change that thinking. I think that we could have had kids using their phones in a way at school that would have used it almost as a computer so that they could have access to information. We could have been helping kids use tablets and, and laptops for things other than skills practice or, you know, fun time when you're finished with the important work. And that's, that's having an impact too. Yes, I completely agree. And they're not reading deep enough to form their their own opinions. They're just taking on the opinions of someone that maybe they skimmed and scanned off the internet. Yeah. And we've talked about that too. Yeah. Not not being yeah, able whoever, to... Yeah, whoever presents the, you know, best media presentation sometimes gets the most credibility from younger people. I thought a lot of what she said about our brains being overloaded with information was interesting yeah. too. You know how she talked about how much information is coming at us all the time? You were just talking about attending a session that you needed to do and that it was so much information in too short amount of time to almost even digest it, right? Yes. And when we're, our brain is overloaded like that, we tend to, number one, start simplifying everything down and then we start trying to process it faster. And then she says the third step is like triage where our brain starts to think about what do I need to know and then how do I save and gain time because this is going to be too much for me to process it all. And I think that those are those things of simplifying, processing rapidly and then trying to figure out how can I get this done in an amount of time that's not appropriate. That's how we're reading a lot of things because we're being given so much instead of instead 
instead of being given what's of value. Mary, did you notice, what did you think about when she when she talked about the working memory, that the changes in the, the quality of our attention are intrinsically related to potential changes in memory, particularly the shorter form called working memory. And she talked about because we're receiving all this information in these smaller chunks or bursts, and, and that's all we can we can focus on are those little units of information. Right. Well, my knowledge of working memory is mostly around literacy and knowing that kids have to have cognitive space freed up to comprehend. That's why we try to help them be fluent, you know, with sign right. words and, and um, structure and things like that. And so I, I can definitely relate to that based on what I've learned over years with kids, but I never thought about the fact that our attention is so connected to our working memory. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? That if you're looking at yeah. smaller bursts of things all the time, then why are you using, why do you need to hold things as long in your memory? I think I sometimes when I read online, I feel like something's wrong with me because I can't remember what I just read. Does that happen to you? I mean, I feel like it's true. Too too much. It's it's yeah. a running joke in my house, but but it really makes sense after reading this. And and I'm gonna yeah. read another quote from her that the average memory span of many adults has diminished by more than fifty percent over the last decade. That's a how long did she say it is now? I'm tr I don't remember. Um, I think she said it was around five minutes now, right? Yeah, she said five minutes. And you know what? I remember a time being um, an adult presenter that it was more than five minutes. I remember being told, you know, how many breaks people needed and how they process information. That has really changed. I thought it was, was eight really to ten. Surprised. Yeah. I did too. Eight I, to I ten really minutes. Did too, Alicia. It's a little, it says a little over five minutes, and that may seem unimpressive, but it's barely half of what it was only a decade earlier, so we're not wrong. I know that we were told that. Do you remember, like, letting people yes. cycle through things mm -hmm. and get up and move and, you know, making sure that they were um, having a chance to process the information because they can only sit for that long, and that's half the time now. Yeah, and it, it makes me think about, too, because we deliver professional development and now if we're going to do it on the screen is that even less like how um how do, yeah right we're not doing ourselves yeah. any favors by doing that are we so it's it's something yeah. to think about and just um just kind of talking about professional development i um on the next page she um she talks about the the notre dame magazine editor yeah. carrie temple and talks about how when carrie temple receives a manuscript to read he always prints it out and and reads it in print and the reasons just kind of made my heart swell that the writer deserves the attention to detail and that this editor wants to make sure that that the transaction is honored with the focus and to fully be present with the manuscript and i just thought and wow that's so beautiful that. we know people who say i need that printed out or you know there's some things you feel like i need that printed i can't just have that online or in my in my uh, tablet I need it yeah. on paper, and you, I can't always predict what those things are going to be for me, but I know that it happens, that I think, no, this one needs to be in print on paper. Right, and I just think that, that that's somebody's work, and to respect it like that with your time and, and your full presence is just, I don't know, I, I think that's honorable with all the skimming and scanning, and I don't know, I just, I thought that was beautiful when I read that. 
Yeah, I do too. I think that's somebody who really values the written word, you know, obviously, because yes. that's his profession. But, you know, he wants to make sure that he, yeah, gets into it that way. If only we all read like that all the time. She talks a lot about more kind of uh, abstract ideas, but she does mention our favorite researcher, Lev Vygotsky. Of course, he's in here. And for all those teacher nerds out there, we love him. And one of the quotes she has from him is that written language doesn't just reflect our most difficult thoughts, it propels them further. So that whole idea of the DPD, the zone of proximal development, the things that you're learning, they're not just there. those things, you are adding to them. And you are creating new thought with from what you learn from um, the written language. So she proposes that what we read and learn is what, how and what we think. Which yes. we know, yes. Which we know. And then I thought it was funny how she used TLDR, too long, didn't read. Did you? <laughs> yes. Uh, do you remember that? We mentioned like that, that before. Yes, yes. <laughs> TLDR, but that's true. I mean, that is, it's become a joke, but it's true. People almost, you know, they don't want to see something that's something they have to really think about. They just want it, give me the facts or give me bullet points. Right. And it takes cognitive patience, which is something that I wish we could all have more of. And she, she kind of told the story how in some of these classrooms in the English department that they're having to give smaller, you know, smaller reading assignments because the reading assignments that they had given in the past, the, the students couldn't get through. It, it was, you know, too, too laborious and they couldn't read them. And, oh, and yeah, that's true. I forgot about that part. Um, yeah, that makes me so sad. Yeah, and then the writing is, you know, starting to diminish as well. Students aren't as, as powerful writers as they used to be. And, mm-hmm. and, of course, we know all too well about that. So, I don't know. There are some benefits and then some things that we really need to pay more attention to, I think. I think a good way to maybe start thinking about tying up what she has to say is, and I know we talked about this in the last podcast, but she has this quote in this chapter again. She says it's not that she prefers the internal to external platforms of knowledge. She wants both, but the internal one has to be sufficiently formed before automatic reliance on external ones take over. And, you know, to me, that's that's really the, the underline of what she's saying is kids need time they need knowledgeable teachers and they need real books together with digital ones and then the option of reading different ways in digital formats not just for entertainment or that quick skimming yes I agree. And I know there was well, so much more we didn't get to, but it there was just it's just a great read. So there's so much more. <laughs> I mean, so much we more. could have just we could have just made this a podcast where we read the book out loud. <laughs> really? Or we could have just read quotes. I feel like that's what I do, but I, I just can't say it any better than she does. So yeah, yeah. And hearing, I mean, me hearing what your quotes were, the ones that struck you, that helps my learning deepen even more. I mean, I really value this interchange that we have. I mean, you and I don't read the book at the same time. We come back together. Oftentimes, we have some quotes that are the same, but we also have quite a few that aren't the same. Right. So. I think that that's the value in, in reading deeply and then discussing it, you know, talking about sharing what you've learned. And then 
I just want to mention that the next letter, letter five, is about what I think everyone wants to know about, which is raising our kids mm-hmm. in a digital age. Yes. Uh-huh. So, a good it, one. Uh, you know, she's going to start to talk about that, and then we get more into that ideas for keeping memory and, and attention, in you know, in mind. She gets into more of that in the later chapters in the book because she has to lay the groundwork first for why we should care. I think that's what she's doing. I think she's brilliant. I know. <laughs> if only. If only we had more. I know. Of her, but, you know, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for her. It's like you said to me the other day, you know, all these researchers, um, they spend so much time and effort and they could probably be doing other things that might be more lucrative or more, you know, easier. But, they're spending their time teaching and learning about our kids and how to help them develop literate brains. So I have a lot of gratitude. Yeah, and, and they help me be able to, to know what to do. And I don't uh-huh. I, I don't want that research to stop. It's needed and it's appreciated. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mary, we're out of time. So that oh. goes by so fast. It does. So next time we'll talk about letter five and hopefully you enjoy it. Remember, we are still on Facebook, Instagram, website, MertonandMorganConsulting.com. We would love to hear from you. Um, We have had some comments on Twitter already, people that have bought the book. So please read along with us. We would love to hear what you have to say. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.